the age of 22, Chanel Lau is already a formidable voice and public presence for those who live at the intersection of Aotearoa's BIPOC and queer communities. On top of relentless advocacy work and studying for their law degree, Chanel has also fought tirelessly to end conversion therapy in this country. In February 2022, those efforts resulted in legislation being passed that bans the practice in New Zealand. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, from growing up queer in Fiji and how that informed Chanel's activism, to the impact of colonisation on queer Indigenous communities. We also explore Chanel's own journey to self-acceptance of their Indigenous queer identity, their experience with conversion therapy, and where they find the joy in their advocacy work. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I wanted to go sort of back to the beginning. So I wanted to talk a bit about uh, your life in Fiji, your ancestors. So do you want to get us started on that? <laughs> Kia ora. Thank you for having me. Um, obviously, I'm Chanel. My pronouns are they, them. And uh, now I live in Auckland, but I was born in Fiji. And I think Fiji is a really interesting place because there's this image of Fiji that we're just like, you know, ball of smiles. Everyone's really friendly and everyone's really kind. And that is the truth for most parts. But like, it's one of those countries where you just don't talk about issues that are difficult. So a lot of the times when I was growing up as a queer kid, I had absolutely no idea who I was because there just was no other words other than derogatory terms to describe how I was feeling. So usually the terms that were associated with being queer were the derogatory terms and you wouldn't want to identify with them because those were shameful and full of stigma. So when I was growing up queer in the islands, I I learned very quickly that it was something that you shouldn't be. Um, I remember that like there was a trans woman in our village who kind of openly lived her life as a trans woman and then she would get abused, not not just by the old people, but also by the children. And so I told myself that if you're going to live your life openly as a queer person, this is going to be your reality. And so <laughs> so that was not an encouraging thing. It was like, oh, it's better that you hide your queerness and protect yourself from all the harm that could potentially happen to you. So that was a part, a very key part of growing up. And I think that is where... I became a bit radical in the sense that I was like, fuck this, I'm not going to put up with this, and uh, became outspoken. So when I eventually moved to New Zealand, um, being an advocate was kind of inherent in my personality because of the way I grew up in Fiji. Um, my ancestors, um, native Fijian and the Gurmitya Indians were brought from India to Fiji during the colonization of India in Fiji. And, uh, you know, these two communities, Fijians and Indians, they obviously they live in the same country, but they didn't like each other very much. So my family tried to breed each other out, which was a very, very, um, uh, I guess, violent process now that I think about it, because they were quite literally trying to strip all away one part of my entire identity and the identity of the people that came before me. And that also was a way in which um, I got kind of pushed further away from my queer ancestors in the sense that I had an entire side of my family cut away from me. 
So I was never able to connect with the indigenous queer Fijian ancestors that I had, the Vakasalewa Lewa, which are the indigenous queer folk. So that was a part of that. And then the Indian family that I had, um, also not very queer friendly. So, so it was it was an interesting time. Yeah. So from what I'm hearing, it was just a very traditional environment that you grew up in but because I've read in like articles and things where you talk about how it didn't always used to be like that in Fiji mm, yeah and because of colonization all of these like stigmas and oppressions yeah about yeah and I, I wonder if like when we say traditional are we meaning traditional in the 1800s or like traditional as in like what really was True. the reality before colonization. So I wouldn't say like Fijian communities are traditional. I think they, they colonized, but they're not really traditional because to be traditional would mean to be in a time that colonization had not happened. I mean, before colonization, Vakasalewalewa, who are indigenous Fijian queer folk, they were integral to our community and Hijira, who are Indian queer folk, were integral to the Indian community. So queer folk were responsible not only for just cooking and cleaning, they were quite literally responsible for caring for the children and for the elders. Um, Hijira have this unique role in modern-day society, and that is caring for children that have been disowned by their family. So old hijra are quite literally integral to the survival of young hijra and without them our community would basically die out now before colonization hijra did not just look after hijra they looked after all children regardless of their gender and sexuality if they were not accepted by their family so they had that special role in our community of caring for children who were not accepted by their family. But colonization happened and their role dramatically changed to just keeping their community alive. So it's those kind of things that when you look when you look to times before colonization, these communities were integral to indigenous communities and uh, colonization stripped that away. And I think probably the worst thing that colonization did was that it also took away most of our ability to decolonize. So it, it came into our lands. It didn't only, you know, murder, rape and destroy our lives. And it also colonized things like our education system so that everything that we learn in this day is just a continuation of colonization. And that's why I personally understand colonization not as a not as an event, but as a movement that is still ongoing and, you know, ongoing through things like the education system. So... What is your connection like with your own cultures and your family? With my culture, I would say that um, it's always a process of relearning because, you know, most of it was destroyed. um, And so everything that now we know is what's left from, say, the elders in our community, what's been written, what's been shared in storytelling. So I think a lot of the times when I personally go out and search for stories and knowledge of indigenous queer folk it's very difficult to find it because there's no record of it and you know indigenous peoples did not keep written records of things we were storytellers 
and things were passed through, say, art and dancing and singing. And so when those those activities were disrupted, there was nothing other nothing left to preserve our culture. So I think it's it's a difficult one and I'm still navigating trying to find a relationship with my culture. But I think that like Pacific peoples and Asians because they have been conditioned with homophobia and transphobia for so long that now their entire culture revolves around being anti-queer. And so accepting my culture has almost become this evasive thing. It's like, oh, like how can something that I love so much, that I want so much, can be so violent to me? It's it's a very difficult one because I obviously do not believe in holding people accountable for things that they are not responsible for. So, for example, I don't think Indigenous peoples are responsible for being anti-queer, so it's really difficult to hold them accountable for it. But also, like, why am I expected to put myself through all this agony to, <laughs> to live my life? Yeah, I I was going to ask whether trying to sort of connect with your culture is a painful process for you because it is also surrounded or embedded with so much pain as well. Yeah, definitely. I would say that, uh, you know, and I often always think like uh, um, a part of decolonizing is actually accepting people who are anti-queer because these people aren't just inherently anti-queer. They were conditioned to be that way. And uh, as Indigenous communities, most Pacific Indigenous communities, we're a collective group. And so to ignore people because of the colonial trauma that they carry is not right. Well, at least it doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, it is a painful process because a lot of the times what I'm doing is sacrificing my own well-being for the intergenerational healing of our communities. And unfortunately, it is often like women and gender diverse folk and non-binary folk who are doing the heavy lifting. I mean, like some great grandfather did not hug his son and suddenly it's my problem. Like I, yeah. I, I've got to, I've got to solve this uh, toxic masculinity issue. It's so it's, wild when you put it like that. It's like, yeah, really. It's like someone's grandfather didn't hug him. And like suddenly <laughs> it's like this entire issue of like the colonial patriarchy. It can. I think colonial patriarchy can just really be overthrown easily if uh, we got men to um, betray the patriarchy, and we don't need all of them to betray the patriarchy. Just enough to get women and gender diverse folks into positions of decision making. Yeah, totally. Hopefully, it'll happen in at least your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's hope so. <laughs> so uh, you're still in Fiji and you actually moved to New Zealand when you were quite young at 14. Yeah. What yeah. led to that? Well, you know, I would say I've lived in Fiji right now. I can tell you that I've lived in Fiji for two thirds of my life. So I, 14 years in Fiji, about seven to eight years in New Zealand. So I've lived a majority of my life in Fiji. A majority of my family had already moved to New Zealand. Canada, Australia, and the UK. So there was no one left in Fiji. So it was it was a natural progression of us leaving. Yeah, but, you know, when you live in Fiji, the minimum wage, there's no such thing as the minimum wage. You get paid $2 an hour if you're lucky. And so my, family, my dad was probably getting paid $150 a week if it was a good week. 
and you know it's it's just not a good life <laughs> it's just not a yeah. good life when you when you've got bills to pay and uh, you've got to buy groceries you've got to pay the school bills cuz schools are not free you've got to pay for uniform you've got to pay for books and you know it is very expensive to live in the islands but there is just not enough money to do that so i think moving to new zealand was one driven by the fact that we didn't have any family left in the islands and two the lifestyle in Fiji was not very good and it still remains economically unsustainable. For context, is it common for families in Fiji to be able to afford to leave Fiji to migrate to other countries? No, not at all. Um, you, you, to get a flight, <laughs> it's, it's not common for people to have tons of savings just sitting around so they can book a flight and get out of the country because it's moving to New Zealand is actually very difficult if you do not come from a white majority country. That's just the way that our immigration system is set up. We give out points and points are basically given out for qualities of being a white man. That's quite literally what points do. It's, uh, an, it's a xenophobic system, but a xenophobic system that meets racism. So if you live in Fiji, you're very unlikely to be able to move to New Zealand. So only a few people from my village have ever been able to do that. And we were one of those people. And uh, when my dad, so my dad moved to New Zealand first and he lived in the country for a few years before we moved. So in that time that he was living in New Zealand, he had to send money back, of course, and uh, save up so he could pay for us to come to New Zealand. Um, it was definitely a very difficult time because my mom had to, she was the only person with two kids, right? So she was staying at home and looking after the children, looking after the house, and my dad was away. So that was difficult, I mean, both financially and socially because um, <laughs> the funny thing about Fiji is that it's so common for people to break into other people's house and, like, steal stuff. And so people would, like, try to break into our house <laughs> all the time because they were like, there's no, like, grown adult man in the house. So if we do, if we somehow manage to break into the house, we'll be able to steal everything without, like, any uh, opposition. So <laughs> people would try to break into our house. And I think that was, like, a thrilling experience. So do you remember what it was like moving? So going from Fiji to New Zealand and trying to adapt to life here? Yeah, I mean, it was really exciting because, I mean, I grew up in a tiny village in Fiji. Um, you'd probably get public transport, like, only during school season and once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And if you missed it, then there was no buzz. So that's, uh, that, that probably gives you an indication of like the infrastructure that we had. And, uh, um, and we lived outside town. So we would probably go to the town only if we needed to go and buy the groceries. So it was not, there wasn't much to do but I think the one thing that I miss about Fiji is a sense of community because we knew I knew every single person in the village in New Zealand I don't even know who lives next door and I think that has to be the most difficult thing because the amount of joy that there was like running around in the village with no shoes with all the children of the village you just do not have that in New Zealand however when I moved to New Zealand I did move right into um South Auckland, and I went to Otahuhu College, which I believe is more than 90% PI, um, Pacific Islanders. So I moved right in. I was comfortable because these are the people that I grew up with in Fiji. And uh, that wasn't a huge cultural shock. However, when I did go to the University of Auckland, I was like, 
holy fuck, this is a convention of white supremacists. It was like, Jesus, these are just like a rich white boys club. So University of Auckland had this uh, random rise of white supremacy, like stickers all over the university. It was like white boys, white men need to reclaim New Zealand. And it was just, the stickers were all over the campus. And the vice chancellor of the university at the time said, this is just a freedom of expression issue. So people are free to express their white supremacist racist views. And this is quite literally while I was in my first, second year of, and I'm in my third now. So it hasn't, it's not been a while. I wanted to go back to something that you said about your queer identity um, mm. and the way that you spoke about it, it seemed like you had always known. Yeah, I think uh, when, I don't know how white queer people see their identity because white queer identities has nothing to do with connection with ancestors, blah, 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 right? Um, I feel like with Indigenous queer people, we have a purpose on earth. And when you are not able to fulfill that purpose and when you're not able to live that purpose, there's this constant feeling of spiritual homelessness. And it's just, you just don't know why you are alive. and. and that that was me. I was like thinking that, well, I'm not I'm not one of those people who are looking I'm not I haven't been put on earth to just um continue the legacy of my family by marrying a woman and having children and just passing my name down. I was like, that is not my purpose. Then what am I supposed to do? And I thought, yeah, there's something different, but I just was not able to name what that difference was. And that's because there was just no words in my vocabulary to name that feeling. I mean, I didn't actually find out about Vakasalewalewa in Hijra until I moved to New Zealand and had access to, like, the internet. And, <laughs> I mean, I had access to the internet in Fiji, but I just wasn't looking for those kind of things. So that did dramatically change my life in the sense that... Uh, it was for the very first time that I'd seen people who looked like me. Um, I often think of like indigenous queer identities as very distinct and different from colonial queerness. Colonial queerness is what I would say is the LGBTQIA plus framework. Um, the LGBTQIA plus framework leaves no room for indigenous queer identities. They render indigenous queer identities invisible by leaving a plus at the end. So all indigenous queer identities are kind of shoehorned into the plus. And I think that entire process of doing that is quite violent and it strips off our identities, off our culture. So colonization was uh, stripping away indigenous queer identities. Neocolonialism is imposing white queer identities onto indigenous peoples. And I think that is why I always try to ensure that people know that I do not identify with things like the LGBTQIA plus framework, because that is, that is an identity for white queer folk. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm keen to explore more sort of the differences. Cause I think a lot of, I'd say most people, when they talk about queerness, they are thinking of more like a Western colonial lens. Yeah. And so what does it mean to be part of an indigenous queer community yeah i think with indigenous queer communities one of the worst things that happen that's happened to indigenous queer identities and genders and specifically is that the othering 
And so now you say the man, woman in the third gender, whereas indigenous communities never had man, woman in the third gender. They just had man, woman and Vakasalewa Lewa. That's Fijian community. That's just how it was structured. However, colonization happened and then they got rid of Vakasalewa Lewa and the reclamation process is suddenly looking like man, woman, and then this third gender, which is absolutely not the case because if, if Vakasalewa Lewa are the third gender, who's the first? Men? And that would be, again, a very Christian colonial way of understanding gender identities. And, uh, you know, I often think about the role of hijra as I was speaking earlier, that hijra in post-pre-colonial world were responsible for looking after children who were not accepted by the family or just did not have a family. There is no corresponding responsibility, cultural responsibility or obligation in any white community to do that. Obviously, in the rise of RuPaul's Drag Race, people have been speaking a lot more about their chosen family, but that that's just a new concept that people have started talking about. There's no corresponding um, obligation in white queer communities to do that. Um, also, pre-colonial, these are, these are stories that have been passed down, and these are stories that still exist, and practices that still go on in Fiji is that Indigenous queer folk um, were gifted with healing powers and so people can quite literally put their hands in boiling hot oil and like take stuff out like these are queer people and nothing happens to them because they were just blessed with those healing powers and there's no such corresponding healing powers um given to white queer folk and this is not to say that white queer folk are less but it's just that they are not cultured like that and now now that i think about it for example the institution of marriage in white communities is that you get a man and a woman and you get married and you don't really need anyone's as long as the law agrees and you've got people to sign your papers that that's it that's your marriage done but if you think about the indian community you go through this entire process and you use these uh god i've forgotten the word um garlands you use garlands as a part of uh, the marriage in fiji most of the garlands are actually made by hijra, which are the indigenous queer folk. And so a marriage would basically be incomplete if it had, if it doesn't have the blessing or the creation of a hijra. Oh, wow. No idea about that. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. So in terms of your journey with your queer identity, because I have read articles where you talk about how it really was a journey for you. Like you didn't grow up loving your body, for example, mm. but as I understand, you have come to a place of acceptance of your identity yep. now. Can you talk me through that whole journey? Well, you know, my body issues <laughs> probably just stemmed from, you know, the Eurocentric beauty standards. Um, and, you know, the queer community itself has a massive, massive issue of uh, presenting an unrealistic body image and when you like google gay men you're probably going to come across a hundred pictures of white men with airs before you come to a brown person or a black person i mean i think that if we did not have black history month and uh, cultural awareness weeks you would never see people of color on white queer like you probably never see brown queer people on like magazines that are for queer people it's almost as though the only time brown queer people or black queer people will ever have representation in queer spaces is if 
we have to. So if we have to, for example, in Asian Awareness Week or Black History Month, it's just, it's just, it was just that, that our representation, representation was so limited that when I looked at queer folk, I was like, oh, I don't look like them. I need to be like them. So I would try to stay out of the sun to ensure that my skin was light when I was growing up. And uh, I would try to be like, oh my God, I should eat less so that I do not get fat. And it's just those kind of things that were, you know, embedded in my mind very early on. And then I grew up and I was like, fuck, I'm not even, I am not even a part of that white queer community. So why am I trying to look like them? And I think finding out that I was not a part of the LGBTQIA plus community was probably a lifesaver because then I stopped trying to live up to the ideals put forward by that community. And now that I look at Vakasalewa Lewa and I look at Hijra, you know, brown and black people thriving in all body shapes and all body shades. And uh, that that has made me much more comfortable with my body. You know, the process of growing my hair was a very difficult journey for my family because uh, it, it is probably one of those things that I've, long hair is seen as very feminine. And uh, because I was already a feminine person growing up, when I started growing my hair out, my parents were like, oh my God, Chanel's going further down the feminine route. And they tried very hard to ensure that I did not grow my hair. And, you know, I had an auntie who was like, oh, I'm going to cut your hair when you're sleeping. So it was just, there was this consistent effort to ensure that I would not become more feminine. And so I, I mean, I was very resistant with my hair. I, I, I drew a line and I said, I'm not going to cut my hair. And so as my hair grew longer, my parents' resistance to my feminine identity became weaker because they were, they were basically recognizing that it was not in their control how I was going to express myself. And now I just have, like, I love my hair so much. I do not, I, the only time I cut it is when I'm stressed out. It's just so many different things happen is that when I kind of unsubscribed to this white ideal of being queer to I accepted who I was. And then I started doing all the things I really wanted to do. So I started wearing like lots of earrings and I started wearing clothes that made my body look good and made me feel good. And so all of those things contributed in a way to affirming my gender. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned like your family thought you were being too feminine, what were their ideas of femininity? Well, I think a typical woman is, you know, the, a typical woman as in like, you know, the woman would have like long hair, be very feminine, wouldn't laugh with their mouth open. Really, a woman wouldn't talk if they had it their way. <laughs> so, so, and you know, just like wouldn't really wear tiny short clothes. It's just this, this captive woman, the imagine a captive woman. It's like a, so, but those, those were not the issues. The issues were that like I was having feminine traits such as long hair. Um, I was wearing, uh, you know, I started wearing wide leg pants and even that was difficult for them to accept because wide leg pants were like, big and flowy and gave movement and kind of was over the top. And so those were the kind of things that they were against. And I mean, it didn't help that like my extended family, like my dad's brothers 
were also inherently transphobic. And I mean, they still are. I can't stand those people. I mean, I've got a cousin who thinks that trans people are pedophiles. And you know, there's one thing that I've noticed with my parents is that it's probably, they're not, I don't think they're anti-queer people. It's just that they're so, um, they're so riddled with like this whole idea of reputation that they, uh, everything that they do is about maintaining good reputation in their community and their family. And because my wider family and my wider community are anti-queer and think that being queer is shameful, that they then kind of worry that accepting their queer child would make them look bad, would make them, you know, fall, would make them fall in the ranks of the family. Yeah. Do you feel like, because that, honestly, that resonates so much because I see so much of that in Chinese society as well. Do you think it comes with the territory of being like a sort of community focused culture, being so yeah. just together in your village? Yeah, that is, de- you know, collectivism is definitely has its, um, downsides. And I think this has to be one of them is that we value what other people think and feel about us too much. I think it's a, it is debilitating how much we care about what people think of us. And I think maybe in white culture, however evil as it may be, they just don't care about what other people think. And maybe that's, that's what helped them colonize the entire world and kill people. But, uh, you know, with, with, uh, especially Asian cultures and Pacific cultures, is that we're such a collectivist community that, that we're obsessed with what other people think. I mean, we would rather be unhappy as long as it means that other people think that we are happy. I think the obsession with collectivist communities with what other people think is very detrimental because a lot of the times we compromise our own happiness to satisfy others expectations of us and so i i think that if my parents were liberated of the expectations of my family members and community members they would be much more accepting of who i am have you not noticed this like my parents have this um really annoying trait where they constantly compare my academic achievements with the academic achievements of say my cousins so, you know, uh, because I was queer, I had to make up for it. Like queerness is seen as less or as lacking something. So you kind of have to make up for it in other areas. So the way that I was making up for it was by being very good at school. Like I did, ve- like I became the ducks of my high school. And so my parents were able to brag to my family about my academic achievements without uh, by making up for my queerness. So, you know, people wouldn't bring up my queerness because I was doing so well in all of these other things. But if I was not doing well, for example, in school, then my queerness would have been a much bigger issue. Mm. If you're anything but X, Y, Z, then you're seen as lesser than. Like yeah. you're sort of like I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about how you're basically like starting below zero and like you have to work so much harder to get to a certain point as compared to someone who isn't queer or isn't Asian or isn't black. Yeah. And no. it's just like that sort of lack of ability to see other people's humanity is just, I don't yeah. understand. Definitely. Cause you know, often, 
when people are hateful or bigoted towards me, I am expected to be nice and kind and civil in response. And I think that's so violent for people to expect me to be kind and civil in the face of hatred and bigotry. Um, I think that's a form of violence in itself. However, I just think like these, these, the status quo is maintained by these ideals of decorum and civility. And, uh, but, but the way that the status quo was established was completely uncivil and unkind. I mean, there was nothing civil about colonization. So what I think has happened is that all of these white men have uh, established the status quo by being violent. And then they've, um, applied all of these, uh, systems of decorum to cancel anyone that retaliates against their status quo and say, I personally believe that we need more chaos and less civility. I think we need to quite literally be violent to the patriarchy. We need to be violent to the status quo. I just do not see how kindness and civility is going to overthrow the patriarchy. Like I would say, like, I want you know, anti-queerness to fear me. I want bigotry to fear me because, you know, a a movement that doesn't make bigotry fear them is not going to change it. I personally think that we really need to make people in power uncomfortable and afraid <laughs> of of uh, of these movements. Of course, you know, you you just there's just no way around. Like, you cannot convince men that they will not be losing something at the fall of patriarchy, they will be losing something. The problem is that they have more than they are supposed to have. So trying to convince men that the fall of patriarchy is not a loss for them is absolute rubbish. It is a loss for them. <laughs> and, you know, they need to just get used to it. So what does that chaos look like to you then? When I was doing the whole conversion therapy ban thing, there were a lot of uh, um, there were a lot of like religious institutions who were saying, oh, you're taking away our right to pray. And in response, Parliament started making all of these provisions in the law that would protect religious freedom. And, you know, if I had been in that situation, what I would tell them is that, you know, freedom of religion does not mean that you get to impose your religion on other people. And I would not have given them any exemptions in the law. Because, you know, no one promised religious people that they that their religion was above criticism. And I think that what often happens is that we take all of these archaic ideas and we try to protect them under the law, which just does further harm. Whereas I think those archaic values do not need any protection. They need to quite literally be phased out of society. Often, like, churches, I think, have this unbelievable amount of protection under the law religious groups have an unbelievable amount of protection under the, under the law but they are also the groups of people that are doing the most harm and harm to marginalized people and uh, my way of chaos is quite literally stripping away for example i would strip away the church's charity status i don't think that um spreading christianity has a charitable purpose and i would not let them be tax exempt i think they should be paying their fair share of taxes and that is a form of chaos they do they do not want multi-million dollar churches aren't paying taxes and that's not fair since you touched on the conversion therapy work i would like to ask you more about that so you have quite a personal connection with conversion therapy Mm. right because you were forced to go through it when you were quite young 
Yeah, I think conversion therapy in the islands looks very different from conversion therapy in New Zealand because, I mean, in New Zealand, we don't have that collective community. It's quite literally disrupted over here. So in Fiji, we have a collective community in the sense, like it, it, the collectivism is so extreme that uh, um, your neighbor can look after your child. Your neighbor can also slap your child. That's the level of collectivism that we have. I mean, the way that children are raised in the Pacific Islands is frowned upon. Well, not even frowned, it's illegal in New Zealand. So, <laughs> so it's, that's just another element. So that collectivist nature means that something might happen to your child that you are not even aware of most of the times. So, you know, and again, because my grandparents were leaders of the church and they were leaders of the community, they were well-respected and they kind of earned that respect three years of service to the communities so of cooking at marriages, singing at marriages, performing prayers at the temple. So they had done like many years of service to the community to gain their reputation. So when I started living, or really when I started growing up as a queer kid, that started to hurt their reputation. And I think that their years of service would have meant nothing if they were to accept a queer child. And that is the hypocrisy, of course, of the church is that they will, they will love and appreciate you until you're a part of the God's plan until the church decides you're not. So that, that, that my queerness started to hurt my family's reputation. And suddenly my queerness was being used against my family. So if my family had a dispute with someone, the other person would say, well, you have a queer child, which means that you, whatever you have to say has no credibility or validity. And so I kind of just kept growing up. And then suddenly the elders of my village would kind of use the collective nature to hide my conversion therapy from my immediate family. And um, so it included things like praying over me and getting me to wear like enchanted bracelets that would rid me of my evil spirits. And I think one of the key goals of conversion therapy is to isolate someone, to alienate someone, and then to just break them down. And the way that they were achieving that is that they kept me away from the girls, which ensured that I wouldn't become, ensured that I wouldn't become um, queerer and uh, they kept me away from the boys, so my queerness would not spread to them. And uh, so that that was that was my process of uh, alienation, isolation, and trying to break me down. I mean, I was I didn't I was basically kept away from young people that were my age, and I had no connection and no friends because of that. And so you give in because you want to make it all stop. You give in. Um, there, during the movement to ban conversion therapy, there was this massive opposition that if queer people consent to conversion therapy, then what's the issue? They're choosing to do it. Well, no one really chooses to go into conversion therapy. When I was growing up, the only thing that I've ever known and loved was my community and my family. And I was a child. And the way that my church functioned, well, my temple functioned, was that they told me that my family would disown me, my community would banish me, and I would burn in hell for the rest of eternity. Now, for a child who's only ever known and loved their community and family, the idea of their family disowning them and their community banishing them was the worst possible thing that could happen. So obviously, you would go in and want to change. And 
the thing with conversion therapy is that you know that if you do not change, then your, then your family will disown you. But you also know that conversion therapy is not working and you're not changing. So now you just have to accept as a matter of fact that your family is going to disown you because you're not changing. Yeah, and I think... Yeah, that, that was kind of what, that is what people do not understand is that coercion don't, doesn't always look like physically grabbing someone and taking them to a camp. Coercion exists by the very fact that we live in a, we live in an anti-queer society. And there's also that emotional manipulation as well, right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because church leaders are probably, the most significant authority figure in the lives of children who grow up in religious families and what these churches have authority over. It's not just the child, but also what the family does. I mean, my friends, my friend's church leader um, told him that uh, if he didn't pray his gay away, then his family would disown him. And then he, the church leader made him sit away from his family just to demonstrate what it would be like if he had not changed. So the church leader did not get the family's consent. He just had the authority to do these things because he was the church leader. And, you know, you really need to put this into perspective that this is grown church leaders doing this stuff to children and, and it's killing queer folk. Conversion therapy, um, the stats, this is what the stats look like. A queer person who goes through conversion therapy is uh, twice as likely to attempt suicide and three times as likely to have higher levels of depression than queer people who have not gone through conversion therapy. So church leaders are basically driving queer people into a life of pain and misery and death, and they get away with it because, you know what, they're church leaders and saying anything against the church leader is somehow being anti-Christian. Yeah, completely sacrilegious, but it's okay for them to push people yeah. to suicide. And, uh, completely ungodly, but, you know... That's that's the modern interpretation of what it means to be godly, to be hateful. You started your work on banning conversion therapy in like 2019? Well, yeah. So in 2017, when I was volunteering, of course, at the Middlemore Hospital, and you've probably read about this because it's been spoken about quite a lot, is that when I was volunteering at Middlemore Hospital, a church leader walked up to me and he said, and he offered to pray my gay way. And when I refused, he said, it's hot, but do you know what's hotter? Hell. And that in that moment, I was like, oh, shit, New Zealand still allows this practice. And uh, so in 2018, Young Labour and Young Green petitioned the government to ban conversion therapy. The government at the time was the Labour, New Zealand First and Greens government. And it was, I think, the Labour Party and the New Zealand First Party who just would not make it a government policy. So at the time, Labour List MP Maya Lubeck put in a member's bill. Now, a member's bill is just like a bill that you put in a ballot and there's like about 60 to 70 bills in there and then it's randomly drawn out. So Maya's bill was never drawn out of that bill. And so in 2019, I became youth MP for Jenny Salissa and then I went to youth parliament and I did my speech in banning conversion therapy. And I think that speech was really the catalyst for my journey to ban conversion therapy. In 2019, we founded the Conversion Therapy Action Group. And uh, that group kind of consistently advocated to ban conversion therapy in New Zealand. In 2020, we 
forced the Labour government to commit to banning conversion therapy. They had no choice. And uh, in 2021, the bill was introduced. And then earlier this year, in February, we basically put the ban in place. But again, the ban, I, in my opinion, is just ineffective. It, it's not good enough. Can you explain more about that? And also amazing work, by the way, like incredible work to get it to <laughs> yeah. where it is now. But um, why do you say that it's it's not enough? The problem with criminal bans is that this is a criminal conversion therapy ban and all that we have is a ban. So the movement to ban conversion therapy asked for a ban on conversion therapy and we asked for mandated education so queer, so that a generation of people would grow up knowing that it's okay to be queer. And thirdly, we had asked for um, funding so that people who had experienced conversion therapy or do experience conversion therapy have access to funded counselling. We did not get the education or the funding. All we got was a token criminal ban. And the problem with the criminal ban is that if you've got, say, a immigrant family from uh, India, an Indian immigrant family living in Fiji, and they have a 14-year-old child, and they are practicing conversion therapy on that child, how likely is that 14-year-old to pick their phone up and call the police and report their parents? Because if the child called the police and reported their parents for committing a crime, the parents would get deported back to India. The child is 14 years old and not a citizen of New Zealand. The child would get deported back with the parents. So the child has two options. One is to just quietly experience conversion therapy in New Zealand. The other option is to call the police, get their parents deported, be deported with the parents, and then experience conversion therapy in India. It completely fails the entire immigrant community. But then you think about Maori and Pacific peoples. Maori are so much more, Maori children are so much more likely to be uplifted from their family. So now Maori children are inherently unlikely to call the police because the police is not going to investigate better solutions. All they're going to do is uplift the child and put them into state care, which is probably more hellish than conversion therapy. Um, again, that is another racist, xenophobic failure of the bill. And conversion therapy fundamentally, um, not conversion therapy, the criminal ban on conversion therapy relies on people practicing conversion therapy and then being caught. So the, the very premise of a criminal ban is that the only way you punish people is if they do the crime. If they're not doing the crime, then they, then there's no punishment for them. Um, so it requires people to go through conversion therapy for this law to actually capture the practitioners of conversion therapy. Whereas what I would have liked to seen is a more proactive approach in the sense of educating people so that conversion therapy just doesn't happen. We have, however, seen a um, domino effect. The government has recently announced a curriculum that educates people on sexuality and gender, but that's just, it's not going to be mandated. It's a voluntary cur curriculum that schools can take up, which means that most schools will not take up. And again, no funding for survivors and victims of conversion therapy, which means that there's tons of people living in New Zealand who would have gone through conversion therapy and still go through conversion therapy, have no help. And so they will go through their entire life living with that trauma. Mm. So what, I guess, it sounds like there's a lot more work to do. Oh, definitely. I mean, I have not even given you half the criticism there's so much more i can say about the bill <laughs> yeah yeah of course um 
what kind of work then are you doing to continue on this um, yeah. sort of not 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 just banning conversion therapy, but just eradicating it completely? Yeah, I think that the work to eradicate conversion therapy does not well, cannot be specific to just ending conversion therapy because it requires a cultural change. What it requires is quite literally for us to change the minds and hearts of a generation of people towards queer people. That does not, that is just not a thing that is specific to um, conversion therapy. So we need to ensure that children are growing up not feeling, one, not feeling that being queer is wrong, but also not feeling that other queer people are wrong and so it requires for us for example in new zealand um, for gay men to give blood they need to abstain from sex for three months now that is a form of discrimination that is sending out a message to queer people and society in general that there's something wrong with being queer it is overturning those kind of things that will then send a message that actually these were just some colonial era bigoted laws that have no place in our society. And I think being able to change those kind of things will be a part of eradicating conversion therapy because eradicating conversion therapy requires us to eradicate anti-queerness. Yeah, right. So it's like part of a wider shift, like socially, like systemically. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously... You can tackle the problem is that I'm one person and I often forget yeah. this. I'm just I often forget that I'm one person and I'm not responsible for every I'm not responsible to like, you know, solve every issue that the queer community is facing. Sometimes I do feel like I am being held responsible for almost everything. So, you know, when I when I in the future when I do movements, I will always just kind of be mindful that this is just one movement that contributes to a l much larger societal change and i think the next logical thing for me to do is of course work on lifting that three-month ban on uh, blood donations but yeah definitely definitely a culture much wider cultural thing that is so much bigger than me so much bigger than any like individual activist you mentioned or you touched on just there about how it often feels like like you're the only one mm. um and so like between not putting yourself into spaces where you're not respected or your culture's not respected or your identity's not respected, but also showing up for the causes that you mm. believe in. And I think that's a really tough balance. How yeah, do you manage that? I don't. <laughs> you know, a lot of – I get asked that question quite often is that how do you do everything and, like, how do you – you know, keep yourself safe and how do you protect your peace? And, you know, I don't, it's just, I'm 22 years old. These are not things that I have figured out. <laughs> you know, I'll probably figure them out probably when in another five or six years, but I just don't know at this stage. I will say, however, that I, as a 22 year old, am held to the standard of, say, an elected member of parliament who's 50 years old. Everything that I say and do, everything they're doing my personal life is somehow under the same level of scrutiny as an elected member of parliament. Everything that I say, you know, is criticized to the same level. And it's just that I have never been afforded the luxury of being a young person that I, I got thrown into politics so early in my life that I was never able to just kind of live my life out and just post batshit unhinged instagram stories because everything <laughs> is now like sometimes i made a comment on my friend's instagram post 
and that was the subject of a staff article. So it's just right. like people will make a big deal out of three words that I say and an Instagram post. And yeah, I guess I guess now you can't really find a balance because there are external factors that you just can't control that are throwing things out of balance. Yeah, that's a complete discussion on its own, just like the treatment of public figures and like the yeah. invasion of privacy basically into their lives. What is the public privy to and what aren't they privy to? It's mm. yeah, it's an interesting debate. Um, but that's, that's, that's kind of makes me feel sad that you feel like you haven't really had that oh, youth definitely. or like I mean, childhood. Yeah. I, I mean, I was definitely forced to grow up much quicker than people my age often are. And obviously I'm not saying that the, I'm the only person that has gone through this. I mean, I think most Asian kids go through this, especially if you're the eldest child. And I think in Pacific culture, if you're the eldest daughter, then you're forced to grow up much quicker than you are. But I think as a queer person who then found themselves leading a movement to ban conversion therapy, I just had to, I was just forced to grow up. And in a way that I, I did it to myself, because if I was going to be taken seriously in the political sphere in New Zealand, I had to appear mature and grown up. So it's, you know, if you ask people how old I am, the most common answer that I often get is like around the 28 years old range. And it's because people had already assumed that I was much older than I am. So now that like when I do things that young people are meant to do, it's kind of odd for people who have followed me. They're like, oh, like you do this. And it's like, yeah, of course I do this. This is what people my age do. They're like, oh, that's like just that, just that, uh, feeling that they have that oh my god you shouldn't be doing that is an issue of itself it's like why do you have a problem with a 22 year old doing things that 22 year olds do yeah totally obviously doing the work that you do and all kinds of like social change and activism work there is a lot of pain and trauma and grief uh, that goes through it and it is kind of like a sort of cyclical thing where do you find the joy in the work that you do i would say that um Often, you know, you would think that like banning conversion therapy would have been like the most triumphant moment in my life. But actually, the day after I banned conversion therapy, and then for the rest of the week, it was probably the most depressing time of like the, the movement. And it's precisely, I think, because so much of my adult life had revolved around banning conversion therapy. In fact, I think my entire adult life had revolved around nothing but banning conversion therapy. And then when I finally achieved that, I immediately went into this stage of mourning. And I don't know what I was mourning. Like I was mourning the death of a movement. And I was like, oh, oh God, like why do I feel upset that I have achieved what I have wanted to achieve for so long? And I think there was that sudden like in that in that immediate moment, the law passed. There was just that sudden loss of purpose and direction, and I didn't know where I was going to go from there. And I think if you haven't really known anything other than just that, it becomes really difficult. But I think, yeah, so banning conversion therapy was probably not my happiest or most triumphant moment. What is, I think, joyful is usually when I get messages from young queer people who are like, oh, my God, 
thank you for doing this. It has, like, it has made me feel like I don't have to go through conversion therapy. And I think that's just that mindset change that has happened for young queer people is incredible. But I think also parents. So I was at the mall um, on Monday. I was in Sylvia Park on Monday and I was stopped by an old woman who was like, oh, like you have changed the way that I see my non-binary child. And I was like, I think that has probably been the most rewarding part of this entire process, this entire journey, is that I have been able to affect change in quite literally how parents treat their children. And I think that's probably the most, yeah, the most joyful thing that's come out of the movement. I wanted to bring everything back to what we were talking about at the start about your ancestors. Do you see your ability to be able to fully express yourself as in your queer identity as a way also for your ancestors to also live their queer identities in a way? Yeah, I definitely, definitely. Because um, I don't see myself as an autonomous individual. I think all of my actions are in a way informed and controlled by the people that came before me. So I see that people who came before me fought to make a world a better place for me. And so I fight to make a world a better place for the generations to come. And one of the ways in which I do that is connecting again to my ancestors. My ancestors, particularly those who existed during the time of colonization, had to suppress who they are, who they were, to live, to be alive, to survive, to keep their people alive in that time. So I think when I was born and when I started living as my true queer selves, it was a way for my ancestors to live their lives, the lives that they were never allowed to live. And I think that's one of my, I think that is also one of my joyful experiences is that I think I am able to, to in a way, allow my ancestors to live the life that they were deprived of. And I think that's, that's just, yeah, you know, this is just like a spiritual level connection that makes me feel like I get chills talking about these kind of things because I f- truly feel that, that my ancestors are living the queer lives through me. Sometimes I'm like, the reason why I am so overtly queer is because I am not just living my queer life, but I'm living the queer lives of the many people that were not allowed to do that before me. So I'm making up for all that was lost in those hundreds of years of colonization. And, you know, it's just being unapologetically who I am. So maybe like, you know, sometimes I feel that there's this disconnect with my ancestors. So every time I am overtly queer, I hope that my ancestors will see me. And hopefully that makes them hopeful for the future of the world. I love that. I think that is a brilliant place to end the conversation. Thank you so much again for your time. I've loved chatting to you and like getting to know more about you and your work. And I do think that you're doing such incredible work and I can't wait to see what you get up to in the future. Thank you. (laughs) A massive thanks to Chanel for this conversation. It really made me think, especially around the term LGBTQ plus and all its variations, popular representations of queerness and who all of that is actually representing and including or rather not representing and excluding. If you want to follow Chanel's work, you can find them on Instagram and Twitter as well as their column for the New Zealand Herald. You'll find links in the show notes.